Hello, and welcome to another Profiles of Endurance. I'm Father Scott Vanderveer. Many of us have been watching stories about coronavirus and COVID-19 on the news, and we have been overwhelmed with scenes of patients on ventilators, with multiple organ failure, dealing with life and death with almost no notice at all. For most of us, those are news stories, but not for Aaron Hegarty Snyder, who has been working as an ER nurse for many years at a Buffalo hospital. But when she found out that her healthcare facility, St. Joseph's in Buffalo, was converting to an all COVID-19 hospital, she wound up having some very important choices to make. Would she go into a facility that was only for COVID-19 patients, especially early in this pandemic when we knew even less about it than we know now? How has she handled that with her faith and with her family? Erin is here with us today to talk about that. And Erin, we're so grateful that you took the time to be here. And let's start at the beginning because I think that'll help us get to know you and what led you to where you are now. Talk to us about your your family life and your faith life growing up. What was that like as a little girl? Um, family life, I was raised an only child in Rochester, New York. Um, I was born in 1979, so late 70s, kid of the 80s. Um, I have, my father has a very large family. He is one of six. My mother is one of five. So lots of aunts and uncles, hmm. um, grandparents around, good family support. Um, raised Catholic. I actually went to St. John the Evangelist School from kindergarten through second grade. Oh. Um, living in Rochester prior to moving to Buffalo, um, where I started public school in third grade. But, I mean, it was pretty routine. I mean, regular, nothing super exciting and, and out of the ordinary. But church hmm. life, I mean, we were not every every Sunday churchgoers, truth be told, um, mm-hmm. celebrated all the holidays though. My grandmother, um, very, very active in the church. She sings in the choir. So I used mm. to spend Holy Week with her, um, every year for Easter. I'd be on Easter break and I would go, um, just stay at her house. So, you know, I was very much into church, um, especially for Holy Week and would go to all the masses with her and everything. But I mean, God's always been a part of my life. Um, always been a big part of my life. I, I just wasn't one to formally go to church, Yeah, but my relationship with him has been very solid and strong throughout. Yeah. Beautiful. What, so what, when you were a young girl and you were thinking about what your future was like, what did you think about becoming when you grew up? I only ever wanted to be a nurse. Really? Honest God. I, you know, my great aunt was a babysitter and I was very blessed to be uh, able to go over there. So she kind of helped raise me. Um, and she had several kids and had like a daycare out of her house and we used to play all the time and we play school. I was never the teacher. I was never the student. I was always the school nurse. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it was really, oh. I mean, even when I was a little girl, I, I just, I think I just loved taking care of people and helping people. Uh, was there ever a time that you were afraid of some of the stuff that nurses see? Were you ever afraid of blood or anything no, like that? No, 
How? Honestly, not. <laughs> like, my husband gets grossed out. I watch a lot of like gory stuff on YouTube that he really would rather I don't watch. <laughs> <laughs> like medical procedures and stuff. I'm like, oh, look at this. He's like, no, 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 it's gross. I, I really don't get bothered by by much. Wow. So you you went off, you went through high school, and the plan was, I'm going to go to nursing school? The, yeah, I went to um, SUNY Brockport, and I was always a very good kid um, in my younger years and in high school. And let's just call me a little bit of a late bloomer. <laughs> I got involved in a sorority and had a lot of fun. Um, I, my major was nursing and my minor was journalism, but I, I pretty much ended up majoring in beer pong and minoring in socialization. So my, <laughs> my parents kind of gave me an ultimatum and said either I finish, turn my minor, which was journalism, into a major, or I come home and I go to nursing school at home. Ah. So I came home and I went to Trocare College in Buffalo. Wow. And I got my associate's degree in nursing there. And then I later ended up getting my bachelor's in nursing from Niagara University. Oh, how wonderful. How wonderful. So, and of course, Niagara is a Catholic school. Yeah, so was Trocare. I needed nuns to straighten Oh, oh that's right. Trocare is too. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So that, and, and you did. When you got there, your focus returned. And oh, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Without question. Yeah. How wonderful. How wonderful. So you, you graduated. What year did you graduate from college? Um, I graduated from, well, became an actual nurse from Trocare in 2003. And honestly, I don't remember the year I graduated at Niagara. I was at, um, I, I want to say maybe 2012, 2013. So I, when I got a job at Catholic Health, they had like a cohort program with Niagara University. So actually my, um, my education was paid for by oh. Catholic Health. In Buffalo. That is wonderful to hear. Yeah. But it also, it causes us to tip a hat to you because it means you got that degree while you were working. Yeah. Were you full-time nursing when you were also finishing your degree? I was. Yeah, it sure was. How the heck did you do it? Um, carefully. Well, you know, we had a lot of support. So they really... I mean, going from a, an associate's degree to a bachelor's degree, it's a lot of just kind of paperwork and mm. projects. It was no really new applied nursing knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't too terribly difficult to do. Mm. What was your first nursing job when you got out of Trocare? I was a, well, I got a job at um, Greenfield Health and Rehab Center. I was a nurse's aide there when I was in school at Trocare, and then they hired me on as a nurse. Mm. So I started there as a floor nurse, and then I became a nursing supervisor there. Wow. And it's uh, like a subacute rehab, so they had... Um, rehabilitation and then it was a skilled nursing facility so just typical nursing home patients where the residents were there and they lived there Mm. Um, but you could really only do so much there and I was still a pretty young nurse so Mm. it kind of got boring sure sure and you you've gone on to a a a nursing career in the emergency room which is the opposite of boring Oh, yeah, that's exciting. So, yeah, I went to, uh, I got a job at St. Joe's in Chitawaga, 
New York, which was a part of Catholic Health, and that was in like 2008, and I worked on the floor, um, and a medical surgical floor for about 10 years, and I, again, got a little stagnant there. Mm. And that's the beauty of nursing. I mean, there's a bunch of different subspecialties that you can just sort of bounce around into. So mm. if you feel like you're getting stagnant, you can, you know, find something new and, and refreshing. So yeah, I went down to the emergency room and it was a fit. I love it. <laughs> oh, it really fits you well. What do you like about it? It's very fast paced. Mm. You never know what you're going to expect. Anything can walk through the door. Um, mm something can come in and it could be something very, you know, you think trivial and then it could end up being something as serious as, you know, a heart attack. Oh, so true. So true. You also, what I would imagine is you are dealing with not just the patient in a, in a state, they're in an emergency state. It's the emergency department, but, but they're any loved one that is with them is probably pretty close to uh, a boiling point with panic for the most part especially you know you find that a lot when um, children come in my hospital mm. is an adult hospital but we still do have parents um bring their children in mm. and we try to do the best we can but you know nine times out of ten unless it's something simple or routine as like an ear infection or whatever we are tr- shipping them over to um children's hospital in buffalo mm. now you have said that nursing was the thing you always wanted to do. It was from the earliest age. You wanted to play school nurse. You have described nursing as a calling in your life. What do you mean by that? What what makes it a calling instead of a career? It is not for the faint of heart. And mm. I think that the only people that really succeed in nursing um, you just, you have to have a desire to help people mm. and un, under any kind of situation and you, you are called to serve in many ways and you, your job is to take care of the sick and whatever that looks like. And, you know, you just sort of have to do it. And for those of, you know, who kind of back out and whatever, that's how you learn that that wasn't their calling. You know, that may, you know, nursing is a, it's a great profession. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ones who really succeed in it are the ones who, and they will tell you that it is a calling, that mm-hmm. they, they just have a strong desire to, to nurse and to care for others. Yeah. So you had such a testing of this calling this year, because if I understand it right, you were, you know, starting around probably the turn of the, of the year when it became 2020, we were hearing about a virus that was very scary, but it was going on in Asia. And of course we know, you know, with people, air travel and everything, things move around, but it sounds like it was as late as February that you were still making, trying to figure out what you were making of this. And and you say that you were uh, speaking with another nurse and said, you know, this, this could turn into a thing. This- yeah. Yeah. I said that to my boss, actually. Um, you know, she has gone through, she's been an emergency room nurse for like, I think 40 years. Wow. And she's like, we went through Ebola and she's going through all these other kind of, you know, exotic fevers and flus and viruses. And, you know, it never really fully came into fruition here mm. in the States. Mm. And I just said to him, like, I don't know. Like, I just have a feeling this is going to, this is going to turn into a thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, this is going to be a thing. Little did I know. Oh boy. Yeah. It sure is a thing. And you know, I think it'll be interesting for us to listen to this interview in 2022 and find out, 
So how long did that last? You know, how long was that in crisis? Because as we're speaking now in the summer of 2020, we, you know, the the cases right now in New York State are are quite low after having a, an initial surge. But, you know, they're, they're starting to creep back up. And the states around us, other than our immediate neighbors, so much of the country right now is just exploding with new cases. And so only the listeners who are listening to this far in the future know how this turns out in a, in a chapter down the road. Um, but, but your hospital made a bold decision in March. How did that decision come about and what did they decide to do? Oh boy. Well, they, um, they decided to take my hospital, which was centrally located. Catholic Health has uh, several hospitals in the Buffalo area, mm. and um, they chose our hospital due to the location, due to the size, the accessibility, the services, to turn it into a COVID-only treatment facility. Wow. So it became the St. Joseph's COVID Treatment Center. How was that announced to you as a nurse in that facility? <laughs> um, it was actually announced to me by a friend. I had actually, it was funny because I was working that day and we were dead because, you know, they had started to say, you know, unless you're really super sick, don't go to an emergency room. Don't mm. potentially expose yourself to this virus. Mm. You know, unless you really, 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 truly are on death's door, don't go to an emergency room. So people were listening mm-hmm. and people were staying home mm-hmm. and the census was very low. And I, I just said to my boss on a woman, like, Hey, do you think I could go home early? <laughs> you know, my husband is off and you know, I just go home for the day. And she's like, yeah, sure. So I went home. Hung out with my husband and my kid for a little bit, took a little nap, and I woke up to, I probably had about 30 text messages, and an announcement had been made on the news um, that the hospital was being changed over and converted over. So everything happened very, very quickly. I mean, in hindsight, I'm sure they would have liked to have told us a little bit differently, but um, I mean, with, with everything COVID and coronavirus. I mean, time was of the essence and they needed to get moving with stuff. So. My goodness. All right. Hit us with your first thoughts. You you just wake up from a nap. You're bleary-eyed. You look at your phone. <laughs> what are you thinking? I called uh, my friend and she said that our boss was going to be having a meeting. Um, I was told by my other friend who was the charge nurse that day that you know, our boss didn't even really, my nurse manager didn't even really know, like, that's how fast the decision had been made. Um, and I, we were all a mess. I think we were all just kind of in shock. And what did this mean? What is this going to look like? Mm. You know, what does this mean for the future of our hospital? Our hospital is a small community hospital. Will we survive this? You know, is this, you know, turning into a COVID treatment facility? Okay. So what happens when you know, COVID is under control, then what? So everyone's mm. thinking about long-term futures. Mm. Um, you know, it was scary. It really was. Oh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. What The, the days start to, uh, to follow one after another. When was it revealed to you what your role might be? Because if I understand this right, a COVID facility doesn't really need an emergency room. 
Yeah, we did not need an emergency room. So I, uh, we were all sort of politely told that we were going to be ICU nurses. Wow. Because we are critically, we have critical care experience. But having critical care experience doesn't mean that we're, you know, critically care trained in the way an ICU nurse does. I mean, we... We like to call fix them. We, we fix them and ship them. So, you know, if someone comes in in a cardiac arrest, we get them back and we start them on medications and we send them off quickly to the yeah. ICU where the ICU manages their care. And then it's their job to kind of keep them alive and and further, you know, fix them and, and return them to some sort of health or at least their baseline, hopefully. But, um, yeah, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. Ooh. Yeah. We were all just in shock. And we're like, how, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? Oh. Did you consider not doing it? Not once. Not once. No, not once. What did you do with the voice of fear? What about the fear that says, this thing could take me out? Well, this thing could take anyone in my family out. And if there wasn't someone like me taking care of someone, someone, uh, uh, you know, how, what's, what's going to happen? What's going to happen if everyone gives up? That goes back to the calling of being a nurse. I mean, why, mm. why say that you're going to sign up to take care of sick people and then bail when the going gets tough, you know, <laughs> really? Like I, I pictured it. I actually posted a thing on Facebook when I, decided to stay and I stayed that you know I told my boss that day you know I went into work for that meeting and I said I'm staying I'm, I'm the Titanic or not I'm going down with the ship oh. and I posted that little um, clip from the Titanic I don't know if you recall when the, the ship is starting to sink oh. and there's the orchestra players you know oh. with the violin and the chalice and they're just sitting there playing trying to calm people in the middle of chaos oh you know, that scene never fully meant, you know, it, it was a dramatic scene. It never made its full impact until this time. Because yeah. I think we started to realize, oh my goodness, we thought we'd seen a lot in our lifetime, but we right. had never seen, wow, wow. Uh, what was the conversation like with your with your husband? Um, I, well, before I went in for that meeting, I talked with him about it and, you know, he just, he's amazing and he just fully supported me and he's like, whatever we have to do, we'll do. Oh. And whatever, whatever we have to do, we'll do. And he, you know, whatever that meant with Jackson, because I said, you're probably going to have to to do more, um, more of the daddy stuff, you know, more of the stuff that I would do too. You know, we're pretty good. I mean, he's an amazing and very active father, but mm. we kind of break stuff up. And I said, you're probably going to have to do a lot of the heavy lifting because I don't, I don't want to be very close to him Ooh. and potentially expose him. I didn't know what that meant yet. I didn't know if I was going to have to move out of my house. I didn't know if I, you know, was they had those um, RVs for MDs, but it was also extended to nurses. I didn't know if I was going to be living in some trailer in my driveway, if I was going to be living in a hotel for months or weeks on end. I mean, I didn't know what life was going to look like. Aaron. But I, I knew that I just couldn't not do it. That is a calling. I think our listeners are understanding in a new way what a calling is. I, I mean, I'm speaking to you as a priest. I've taken vows and, you know, I might be looking into 
Airbnbs in Mexico. (laughs) 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 And you, I mean, this is a calling. So it, uh, it, was there ever, was there an oath or something that you took um, as part of the graduation ceremony that you lean on? Is there a moment where you go back to? Uh, Flo Nightingale has a pledge. I don't even recall it, <laughs> to be honest. But, uh, you know, she walked around with a lamp. Uh, so I uh. guess I, I had my little lamp and was shining my light around. But, yeah, I, I mean... I don't know. It's just, it's just what I was supposed to do. You know, I think not for nothing, but anybody who's on a first name basis with Flo Nightingale, (laughs) did you hear that everybody? We call her Florence, but uh, when you really, when you put enough skin in the game, you get to call her Flo. (laughs) The queen mother of nursing. Oh, it's so true. It's so true. I just, I I really want to savor this because I think it's just a really remarkable thing for folks to hear. And I wonder, um, you know, I think there are probably people listening right now with tears in their eyes because maybe they're a nurse or they're a teacher, you know, or they have some other role that is a calling that causes them to say, yes, I, I do whatever it takes to help other people's kids. I do whatever it takes to be with the sick. And I mean, your, your son is a adorable and B at the time was, you know, two and a half. Yeah. So this is a major, I mean, you, he's your only child and you're, this is a pretty loving thing going on there. So, um, you, you really followed the calling without wavering. It's a, it's a, it's a really powerful thing. I think for us to hear, I'm grateful that you're sharing it. It's, it's huge. Was there anybody in your life who didn't support your decision? I don't don't think so. Honestly. Wow. I think everyone, I mean, I feel like my family was nervous. Yeah. Um, you know, we all were kind of nervous, especially like I worried about my parents. My mother has an autoimmune disease. My father has type two diabetes and they help with watching Jackson when I work, when my husband and I work. So, Mm. um, you know, I didn't, I had to be very mindful of what that meant for them too, because I obviously did not want to bring anything home to them. Right, right, right. Oh my goodness. So how much training did you undergo before you started the first day on a floor with patients? That was really by the grace of God. So we got a four hour, uh, hit or miss basic training. I see you. Wow. These are the medications you're going to be seeing a lot of. This is what they do. Um, you know, we were dealing with things called arterial lines, mm. um, which monitors blood pressure, and you can get blood off of it, but it's not something that we would normally do in the emergency room, yet everybody had them there. Um, more of a ventilator a ventilator class. Um, so there was probably one day of education, mm. and then, we, you know, we were on the floor. So the truth be told, though, it was that, you know, Catholic Health did an amazing, amazing job to make sure we had some outstanding ICU nurses come over from the other Catholic health hospital sites. And, um, we had had agency nurses to come in to deal with this crisis and the teamwork was amazing. So 
It was really baptism by fire, though. It was learning on the job. You know, it's not any of that cushy, you know, oh, you get, you know, eight to 12 weeks of orientation and then you're on your own. It was really none of that. You, I mean, it was it was rough. You literally, it was literally wartime wartime nursing for sure. Wartime nursing. I mean, the yeah. image the image I have is you took off and then you were still building the plane as you were flying it. You had to fly oh, it and build it at the same that's time. How, that's how it went. You know, there were they would come out and say you're going to do this at 10 a.m. and then policy would change that afternoon. I mean, everything was so fluid because everything kept changing. I mean, the coronaviruses is new we didn't or this type the strand of it so we didn't know what to expect we didn't really know how to treat people we were going off of what was happening in italy um you know we were anticipating the worst like we were honestly preparing to be surrounded by death oh and yes death happened but we had a lot of miracles come out of it and we saved a lot more people than we lost and i think that that is an amazing credit to you know, the healthcare workers and to God for just giving us all the strength to get through this. Amazing. Amazing. But I, I can only imagine based on what you've said about your own calling about, you know, the, the flow Nightingale way of approaching things, the bond between you nurses must be amazing. Especially the ER nurses. I mean, we really, there were some of us that couldn't stay for um, health reasons, and some just decided to kind of to leave and, and go elsewhere. But, oh, my God, the ones that have stayed. Because no one was asked to do anything so dramatic, um, as dramatic of a change as the ER nurses were to become these ICU nurses. It's oh. a totally different type of nursing. Um, you know, the care is consistent. You have these patients for weeks. Wow. Um, you know, multiple, multiple trips are running. They're on ventilators. You're proning them and flipping, you know, 250-pound people over onto their bellies because, ironically, it helps them breathe better. Wow. You know, it's it was just crazy, crazy stuff that we were doing. And we were all scared and terrified and out of our wheelhouse, and we all just did it together. So I think the bond... And the emergency room nurses, the ones that, that stayed, is really amazing. We are we are family. We really are. Oh, so moving. What what is suiting up to be a nurse in a COVID nineteen hospital like? Uh, well, I would walk in in my regular scrubs, and I was given a pair of scrubs there. They First, they had the hospital cordoned off into zones. The green zone was safe and clean. Mm. The yellow zone would be if you had to walk through on your way to what was called the red zone, which would be a patient care area. Ooh. So you walk into the green zone, and you were stopped at the door, and you had to have you know your temperature check and a symptom check done. And we walked into this um, one room that had, you know, just a bunch of scrubs. We were supplied hospital scrubs to wear for the day. So then we'd have to change into our scrubs, um, our hospital scrubs, out of our regular clothes. And then I changed my shoes. Mm. I had COVID-only shoes that just stayed at the hospital for for work. Mm. Um, and then we had to, when you walk through the yellow zone, you had to wear a mask and gloves. And you couldn't touch anything, don't touch the walls or anything. And then suiting up to get into the red zone, we had people that would don you and help you get dressed. Um, A lot of them were surge tech, so they're used to sterile procedure. And we would have to put a gown on 
and we would have to put an N95 mask on. We would have to put a regular surgical mask on over the N95. Wow. We'd have to put a hair bonnet or a bouffant on, and then, you know, our gloves. Oh. Oh, and eye goggles. We had eye shields, face shields, too. For those who are, are, are viewing this on YouTube, we'll put a picture of that for them to be able to see. We do have a picture of that. That, it's just, what's the, what's the most, I imagine it's different for every person. For you, what was the most uncomfortable part of it? Um, I kind of had a little bit of respiratory problems myself. Um, so it was very hard to breathe through both of those masks. Oh. Um, you know, that was was kind of hard for me. I also have a little touch of claustrophobia, so I just had to, thank God we were very, very busy and you didn't have the opportunity to think about it. Oh, um, yeah. So you just went in and you just got to work right away, but if you, if you had any kind of downtime or lag time, you're just like, ugh, I can't breathe in this stuff. I, the masks oh, were the most difficult for me. I could understand. I For those of us who've worn an N95 mask, and some people may have had the chance to, I when I go to healthcare facilities, that's what I wear. It is... It's a lot to wear even for a short amount of time. You, you really feel, you know, it, whether it's true or not, your, your body tells you that you're not getting as much air. Right. And uh, that's hard to overcome. You, you also came up with a really inventive way to remain human to, to the patients because you looked a little bit like an astronaut. You know, but yeah. what did you do? What did you do to remain human so that somebody knew that you were you were someone with a face? We were given um, badges. They took our regular picture off of our traditional badges and blew them up. And they were like, I don't know if they were four by. I think they were about four by six, and laminated them with our name on them. So when people were opening their eyes, you know, for the first time after being in a drug-induced coma for months while on a ventilator or weeks um, mm. and they would wake up and they would actually see what the people look like behind all the gear. Wow. It's, it's a very beautiful, I mean, for, for somebody like me who doesn't work in healthcare but works in ministry, the overlap here is just remarkable. I mean, it feels like you took a page out of the, the book of any kind of of pastoral care manual that we would have in church, you know, for how to be a loving presence with people in crisis. It's just a remarkable, I think, I think I'm, I'm learning that maybe the churches need to, to take a page out of the, the healthcare book because I'm really touched by the, the creativity and the kindness. And it's just remarkable. You, you've been speaking about some of the things that you saw, people in a, in a drug-induced coma so that they could breathe on a ventilator. This is, uh, for some of us, this might be new to actually hearing actual stories about coronavirus from somebody that, you know, could, could live down the street from them. Um, here in our parishes, during the height of coronavirus from March until mid-May, I... Um, I, as a priest, celebrated eight funerals for folks who passed away from COVID-19. Uh, and that, you know, most of them were older. Um, I would say that the youngest was in their upper 60s. And then I would say the median age was probably upper 80s, lower 90s. But, uh, but they were terrible losses for us. What kind of things did you see patients going through in the hospital? Um, well, initially when it started... Um 
like I said, you know, our, our protocol had changed and the way we were treating people had changed as we learned more because with the coronavirus being so new, um, everything, you know, we were just taking things from Italy and in Asia and just kind of trying to build off of that. And as things didn't work, we would change our protocol and our policy and how we were treating these people. Initially, they were saying that early intubation, um, which meant putting them on a ventilator, was their best chance of survival. However, once they are put on a ventilator, it's hard to get off, Mm. um, get them off of a ventilator. So it was very much a gray area. Initially, we were treating with the Plaquenil and the the azithromycin. That we did early on, and we learned we really weren't having any kind of benefits, and the Plaquenil was also um, giving people arrhythmias. Mm. So we had stopped using that. We had had very good luck with a medication called Redemzivir. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mm. Um, It is a a medication that's like a suppressant that is used usually, I think, for people with arthritis. Mm. Um, So we were doing different things to get people going. But, I mean, you know... It, it's a hard thing like you know the drug of choice when someone is sedated we would put them on propofol and that would keep them unconscious but then that would tank their blood pressure so then you would have to put them on a medication called Bevafed, which would help bring their blood pressure up however if you're keeping someone on a medication like Levofed for an extended period of time it pushes the blood supply to the vital organs oh. so then your extremities we're not getting blood flow. And, you know, we had patients that lost toes because of blood flow, but, you know, what was more important at that time, the more important thing was keeping their blood pressure going so they could stay alive. That's right. Um, so, I mean, they were on ridiculous amounts of medications, multiple, multiple medications, medications for pain, you know, fentanyl. They were on medications, you know, for sed to help with the sedation and anxiety because obviously, you know, it's... It, very, if you're not fully sedated and you're, you have a tube down your throat, you're obviously going to be anxious and, and wanting to grab and pull. Ooh. Um, Ooh. There was just a, a lot of stuff. We were doing the proning. The proning was working very well for many people, and that meant turning them onto their belly, um, which would increase their surface area of their lungs wow. and promote lung expansion. So we would have people, if they could, as long as they could tolerate it, but we would try to have them on their bellies for 16 hours a day wow. and then flip them over. But these people are literally dead weight because they are unconscious and they're, you know, sedated and they're paralyzed. They had to be paralyzed when they were on their belly. So, I mean, it was quite the production. I can't imagine. And, and oh. people of all sizes and nurses of all sizes and strengths yep. trying right. to do this. Yeah, it would take probably about six or seven people to, to flip someone. My goodness. How, what were you experiencing about the age ranges of folks? Uh, middle-aged, I would say. I mean, a lot of, you know, unfortunately I have two patients that um, did pass away, but one was a 37-year-old mother of four, one was a 41-year-old father of a five-year-old little boy, and those kind of stuck with me because Whoa. they were so young. Whoa. Um, the majority of people were my parents' age, which kind of freaked me out. Yes. So probably like mid-60s. Wow. If anywhere from mid-50s to mid-70s were the majority of people. Um, you know, And that was just the ICU. I don't really know what happened 
on the floors, you know, like on the regular medical floor, the age range is up there. Um, You know, a lot of times they had a lot of the older people come in from the nursing homes, the geriatric patients that are in their 80s and 90s, and a lot of them already um, had a DNR, DNI order, so they did not want to be intubated. Ah. So they were, you know, just kind of up there for comfort care until they passed, unfortunately. Could could some people survive without being intubated, or was yes. that rare? No, they no. There were people that could survive without being intubated. Wow! But it absolutely. all absolutely it all it depended. All depend. yeah. yeah, you know, one of the things that uh, that I don't want to uh, promote any dubious science, but one of the things I I do hear being talked about in the news right now, and like you know. There's some listeners that might be hearing this months from now that'll find out this either was a really big lead or it was almost nothing. But it does seem like there may be a, a relation between people's blood types and the way that they do this too. Is that something you've heard also? I, I had heard, I did hear that. Um, that people with type O had a better chance. Um, people that were A or A positive, which <laughs> ironically I am, oh dear. Um, did, not have, did not have a great um, chance of survival. Um, I don't know enough, uh, quite honestly, I didn't really look enough into that. We were doing convalescent plasma, Mm. which meant um, harvesting plasma from someone who had already had uh, COVID and had beaten it Mm. and had donated it to some of our patients. We were doing, um, or I think we were part of a Mayo Clinic study, research study, so I don't really have results Ah. at this point to know if that was really beneficial or not. Mm. Um, I just know that people were really, really sick for really, really long periods of time. Wow. I mean, really sick. Because initially, we just, you know, like I said in the beginning, we were just anticipating people being on ventilators and dying. And thank God they were not dying. And you can only be on a ventilator for a couple of weeks with a tube before we have to talk about having a trach put in. Right. So then there became a whole interesting, you know, little thing there because you don't I mean not that you didn't want people on trachs you do want them on trachs and you want them to have that chance of survival however the potential for contamination is much more if someone has a trach and they're coughing and you know projecting that out into the atmosphere oh certainly certainly wow the the number of factors for those of us who don't work in healthcare, it's it's dizzying you start realizing, wow, it's one on top of another on top of another. Wow. Thank goodness there are people like you and others in your field who are willing to be right there with it every day. It's, uh, it's amazing. Now, you have emphasized that there were many more positive stories than tragedies. Thanks, thanks be to God. Absolutely. Flat out miracles. Miracles. You saw no way to explain how certain things happened. Correct. And For for all intents and purposes, if anyone with any kind of medical knowledge and background were to read a case study of some of these people, you'd be like, oh, this guy's going to die. This guy's going to be dead at the end of the story. And people were maybe not walking out because we had to send them to rehab to get stronger, but they were going home to their families. Amazing. And it was solely by the grace of God because, I mean, we did our best medically and and he took over the rest. Oh, is, oh what a beautiful way to say you, you did the best you could. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. 
you did what you could and then you handed it over to God and God did Absolutely. the rest. Oh, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. And, and your, your story is that, that St. Joseph's number of people who walked out of the COVID-19 facility is in the hundreds. Yeah, I think, you know, I, we lost, I lost track to be honest with you. The last number I heard, I believe it was over 650. 650 in the Buffalo area alone. That mm-hmm. is and that was just from our hospital. I mean, that's not to say there are many, many hospitals in the area, so I'm sure that the number is better, but just from our little hospital alone. So impressive. So impressive. Uh, wow. One thing I think we should pause with for a moment, though, to, to just remember some of the roles that nurses and others in healthcare sometimes face as, as everyone knows, family members were not able to be at the bedside of loved ones at this time for their own safety and for the safety of everyone in society, because this is such a contagious illness. Um, one of the jobs that people in the hospital would have, it sounds like often nurses, was to hold a cell phone before a patient who was very ill so their family could talk to them. There's yeah. that, that's, that's another part of this, of this story, too. Yeah, we had one OR nurse, um, because, you know, everyone was kind of moved around when this became a COVID-only hospital, so everyone kind of had to find what they could do within um, their scope of practice, and we had an amazing uh, OR nurse named Michelle, and she took around an iPad every day, and she would go room to room, and she would let families visit with their loved ones on ventilators. She did it on the floor. Oh. I mean, she was amazing. And I often said to her, I'm like, I, don't, I do not know how you do the job that you do. Oh. I mean, I give you the strength to do it because I don't know that I would have it. <laughs> I was, really don't. Was she able to put any, any words to how she was able to do it? She said some some days are better than others. And oh. she just sort of left it at that. And I, I would notice sometimes, too, she would go in there and she would talk with the family a little bit and give them an update on the patient. And then she's like, I'm going to give you a little bit of private time and she would leave the room. And and I don't know if it was more for to give that private time or for self preservation on her end, because I had been in and sat in on a couple of conversations when I was providing care and she had come in, um, for family members to talk and it just ripped at my soul. And Mm. I'm like, I I have to leave the room. (laughs) Like Mm. I can't, I can't be in here for this. Cannot imagine. Just cannot imagine. Oh, how did your faith come through this? How has your faith been affected by being in the midst of something so big? I mean, I think it's only made it that much stronger. I mean, I can't, like I said before, I mean, some of these people really have the odds stacked against them. Mm. And just to see them home with their families now, there mm. is no other way to explain it other than a flat out miracle. Mm. So I I know that we did like like I previously said, we did what we could, but there is definitely a higher power out there that was getting them home to their family. How beautiful. You you've talked about some of the saints that you turn to as a nurse in this, in this environment, you would pray for the intercession of saints. And uh, the three saints you mentioned were St. Michael, St. Jude, and St. Joseph. Talk yeah. to us about why you chose those saints. St. Jude is all I've always had a very close relationship with. 
patron saint of hopeless causes. I was a little bit of a wayward uh, girl for a period of time. <laughs> so he uh, has always kept me grounded. And I also, um, I wear his medal every day. I'm actually mm. touching it now. Oh. Um, but my, my son, I had had two miscarriages prior to giving birth to my son. And St. Jude was the saint that I prayed to every day. Oh, and my. I have no doubt in my mind that he kept him safe for me and help deliver me a healthy baby boy. So I always call on him when things seem kind of dire and hopeless, which Mm. I felt like COVID was, Mm. um, and very terrifying. So I called on him for that. Mm. St. Michael, because uh, I wasn't quite sure what this COVID thing was, but I'm like, this is is an act of evil because this is terrorizing people. Ah, felt so dark. Yeah, very heavy. So I mm. had um, a good friend of mine named Mary. She got me a St. Michael uh, prayer card, and I have that in my visor in my car, and I say that prayer every day before mm. I go into work. And then St. Joseph, because our hospital is St. Joseph, and who better to take care of all of us than the the saints that that hospital is named after. How beautiful. So, yeah. Oh, what a beautiful thing. I just, I, I think... For me, as somebody who has not spent much time in the hospital in my entire life, I had tubes in my ears when I was a, a little kid, and then I had hernia surgery as an adult just, just last year. But um, if I knew that the nurses coming into the hospital were praying to St. Jude and St. Michael and St. Joseph to keep us all safe, I just, oh, I will never not think of that now when I'm in the hospital, how important it is to, to allow those saints to be invited in. That's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. What is your hope? We are now, as we speak, in the middle of summer. And uh, as we said at the beginning, there is, there's a real uptick going on right now all, in a lot of parts of our country. We're blessed to be in upstate New York where things are still quiet, but we know, we know from hearing about other pandemics in the past that it's very expected that there will be another wave. What is What kind of a response would you like to see our society offer as we go through this? We might be in, you know, they keep telling us it's it's a marathon, not a sprint. Right. Um, it very much is a marathon. It's not going away, I, I mean, anytime soon. I don't think it's ever going to go away. I mean, what we can only hope is that at some point we will get it under control like we have influenza. Mm. So, um, you know, we're working on getting a vaccine, which is the first step, but Mm. everybody needs to do their part. I mean, I feel like I get it. I mean, we were all cooped up for months on end, not going anywhere, staying home and people are sick of it. The weather is nice. You want, you're sick of not spending time with your family or your friends. You want to be outside. You want to go shopping. You want to be at the beach and everything else, but you have to be smart and you have to be diligent because when you get sloppy, that's when things are going to happen. And, you know, it may not affect you personally. You may be an asymptomatic carrier, and then you go to visit your grandmother, and then your grandmother gets it and she dies. Mm. Or you bring it home to your spouse or your child, and they could have very different effect. you know, have it affected them differently than it would affect you. I mean, it's just, so many people have it, are in the political mindset right now, and they're not 
really paying attention to the science behind it. Mm. I mean, hand washing works, social distancing works, mm. you know, everyone complains about, you know, what, what is going on in New York state and, you know, they're taking our rights away and we can't even do this and we can't even do that. But look at our rights. Our rights are low because we are, for the most part, doing that. The majority of people are doing that, whether they're forced to do that or whether they are doing it because they know it's just the right thing to do, not mm. just for themselves and for their families, but for humanity. Mm. It's not just about the individual or the people you directly care about. What happened about caring about your neighbor? Yes. You know, do you do you want to risk having, you know, I have neighbors that are in their 70s next door to me. I could not imagine. I would feel horrible if I was a carrier and got them sick mm. because I went over to their house for dinner. You know, I mean, it's, you just have to be smart all it's, the time and not let your guard down. It's worth the diligence it to is, save lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We're talking, well, and I just am struck by, if there are nurses willing to put as much skin in the game as you and your colleagues have, what I can do as as a, a cog in the wheel of this machine is is wear my mask and, and keep my distance and wash my hands and and not not take chances. I mean that's it's the least we can do for those who are really sticking their neck out. And, and yeah. What you said something really interesting that you, uh, this isn't going to go away. Influ- it's a great thing, I think, to compare it to the flu because I think most of us are thinking, how long until this goes away? But it's not like any kind of new virus. That's not how it is. It's, right. it's going to be among us. What What do you hear being talked about among nurses? Do you guys make guesses and bets of of what you know, how long people will wear masks, what you think is going to be really different for a long time going forward? I think it's hard to tell. All of us are pretty much waiting with bated breath for the fall and winter Yeah, coming up because initially they were saying that it was similar um, to the flu, that it would follow the path of the flu, and flu season is from fall through spring. Mm. So it, I will be very interested in seeing what, happens throughout the course of the fall and into the winter months but um i don't know i just i want i want a vaccine that's been tested and tried and true and you know even with the flu there's naysayers about the flu shot and whatever i understand that too but we know more how to deal with the flu and you know the this COVID is still just so new. And like I said, we're learning new things about it every day and we're starting to get more of a handle on it. But I don't, I don't selfishly, I don't want to have to do this again. Yes. You know, I don't have, you know, there's a, a truth to the saying that ignorance is bliss. Mm. I didn't know what I was walking into in March. Mm. I didn't know the kind of hell that I was going to have to go through mm. for two months. And now that it's, kind of, you know, the numbers are lower and there's a bit of a reprieve. I'm terrified that I will have to do this again because I don't know that mentally I can. Like it is a lot. Like I, people don't get it. I was, I was depressed. I was Mm. flat out depressed. Mm. And, you know, I have a girl that I actually just met. Her sister was a travel nurse and she was in, um, New York City, and I can't even, I have no idea what she saw, but if Ooh. 
it's probably 10 times worse than what I saw, and I can't even imagine. But she ended up committing suicide in her Airbnb because she was so depressed and just could not snap out of it. Yeah. And was a nurse taking care of COVID patients. And, you know, it's not the only story. And you, you talk about the nurses that have died because they've gotten COVID-19, but what about, what are the long-term effects going to be for all of us? Yeah. You know, is there going to be a post-traumatic stress? You know, I, I've been furloughed because the census has been low by, again, by the grace of God, thankfully, the census has been low and I go back next week. I'm terrified to think that I'm going to have to go back into the ICU. I don't want to have to do it again. Yes. I don't want to. I'll do it if I have to, like I said, because that's my job. But I, knowing now what I would be walking into, I I mean, I definitely feel like I would need therapy. Yes. (laughs) I I really do. Yes. Yeah. That's, uh, that's so good for us to hear. That is so important for us to hear because this, um, the, the cost of this, is not nothing. The cost of what this does to us. Yeah. Oh, and I think, yeah, there's a lot of us in helping professions who can truly relate to this. And, uh, I think, yeah, I, I think you're, I I think and hope that what you're saying really falls on, on receptive ears among a lot of us. You know, Aaron, there's a, there's a few questions that I always ask at the end of one of our conversations here. And, uh, they're, they're stock questions that uh that people often wrestle with and and you can just give your honest response to them but the first one is many people live their life by a code that everything happens for a reason that's that's something that a lot of people will turn to as a guiding light for them other people feel quite the opposite they don't think that everything happens for a reason where have you been on this in your life what do you think totally believe that everything happens for a reason. Um, I 100% believe that. And especially with all things COVID, I am not opposed to the thought that God is kind of trying to give us a little bit of a check Mm. and saying, listen, I'm going to send you guys something and I'm going to test you. Mm. And I'm going to see, not that he's, I'm saying that he wants people to die, but I mean, this is a check for a lot of us. Because this has brought out the best in some people and it has brought out the worst in others. Truly. And I feel like people just need to kind of reset and Mm. get away from electronics and get away from all the other stuff and get back to families and get back to, you know, being able to communicate. Maybe, you know, now that you can't physically see your family, now you maybe appreciate them a little bit more. Mm. And the time that you do spend with them will mean a little bit more. And, and I feel like it was just kind of a hard stop. And he's like, I'm, you guys need to kind of reset mm. and, and get back to basics. And, and I could totally be wrong on that. But I, you know, I, I just feel like this is a good opportunity for people to do better. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful, which which actually brings up the the last question I'll ask now. What are your hopes for us as we get to the other side of the most traumatic part of coronavirus? What is your vision of this world on the other side of you know if this is a, if this is a test for us to be better? What does it look like? A lot more compassion mm. for other people and what they're doing. A lot mm. more do unto others. Uh, mm. You know, 
caring for your neighbor mm. and your family and your community. And we all need to kind of take care of each other. I yeah. feel like that's kind of gone wayward in a lot of ways. And it's, it's a be me, me mm. kind of society in a lot of aspects. And mm. I, I think we all just need to be a little bit kinder. You know, I feel like if Mr. Rogers was around, things <laughs> would be a little bit different. I would hope anyway. But, I think you're naming it. Oh, oh, I think you're naming it. Absolutely. We were, we were raised on better than that. Yeah. yeah we absolutely. were raised on better than that. What are you doing? What will you do to endure this? You're right on the front lines, Erin. You're right on the front lines. What are you what are you gonna do to endure all this? I just need to take it one day at a time. Oh. Just one day at a time. Amen. You know, I hope and I pray that this this does magically just go away. That would be amazing. Mm. Um but yeah, I mean you you gotta trust that God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. Mm. And that you just take it one day at a time. Mm. Oh my goodness. So I'd like to I'd like to pause now for a second and and just invite the listeners to join us with their own thoughts and reflections for a moment. What is it that you heard in this conversation that brought you a new insight you had not yet had? Was it something about the description of what this disease sounded like? Was it the idea of a calling being something that you follow even if it leads you through danger and through something that is maybe the most depressing kind of situation you've ever been in did you think about how those saints jude and michael and joseph have helped aaron through this hard time and have surrounded that hospital with blessings and protection and strength how many miracles happened there over these months and how many more are in store? What is it that you'd like to share with someone else from this? What hope can you speak to someone who needs it? Aaron Hegarty Snyder, we are so grateful to you for being here with us. I, I don't know what the future holds for me, but I sure hope that the next time I find myself needing healthcare, that you are the nurse at my side. Oh my goodness, I am so, so grateful for your time and, uh, and, and for all that you are doing for, for our listeners and for all of humanity in, in the work that you do. Thank well, you. Thank you. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us and may God bless you all.